Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Be looking at the whole chapter, verses 1 through 25. Romans 4, 1 through 25. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead 
Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, proof upon proof upon proof you give us for the great love that you've shown us in sending your Son to suffer our just punishment for our sins and granting us his righteous record in order that you could cleanse us from our sins, declare us righteous only for the righteousness of Christ, and grant the Holy Spirit to live in us to change us more and more into Christ's image. Help us by the power of your Spirit to embrace these proofs this morning as we attend to your word now. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. It's all a matter of perspective. And for an illustration of that, uh, I want to retell a story that I heard uh, from Justin Wilson, the Cajun chef uh, from YouTube. I actually took it down word for word because... I don't, and I am going to try to do something a little weird here. I'm going to try to do it in the Cajun accent of Justin Wilson, uh, of which I am no expert, but I'm going to try. I wrote it down as closely as I could to the way he spoke. Because you, this story, you got to hear it in, in the way it's told. It, I can't just tell it in my regular voice. So, he said, I got a friend. He was rode down the Bayou Bank one day looking for some cattle, what he had. And he saw the bayou was real swole up from some rain, what they had. Y'all know, uh, y'all know that a swell them bayou pretty good, just like a river. And he saw a Cajun sitting on the side of the bank and fished there. And he rode up to him and he said, my friend, do you know a shallow place where I can wade this horse, what I got here? He was riding a horse back there. I can ride this horse across and I won't get myself wet, huh? This Cajun say, yeah, yeah, how come you want to go cross? He say, I got some cattle going down the other side. I'm going to round them up and I need to get across. That's how come. He say, okay, right down there by them stump, it's shallow, 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 shallow. He say, all right. So he rode down there and kabloom. He jump his horse off and the horse, man and all, go out of sight. Just his hat left float on top of the water right there. And man, he came up, choo, 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 spitting that bayou out. And he say, how come you done told me that lie? This Cajun say, I did not lie. He say, oh, yes, you did. Oh, no, I did not. He say, just for them third lie, I'm going to unclimb this bayou and beat you plumb almost all the way to death, I guarantee. <laughs> Cajun say, I did not lie. He say, I did it just as soon as I get out of here. He say, I swear I did not lie. Just before you brought yourself and asked me, do you know a shallow place I can wade my horse across this bayou? Just before you brought yourself, a little bitty dog with legs just about two and a half or two inch long weighed all the way across that right there by that stump. I guarantee. It's all a matter of perspective, isn't it not? The Cajun had a perspective. 
And Mr. Wilson's friend had a bunch of assumptions like the Cajun knew how to observe whether that dog was swimming or walking. And it works that way for us humans, doesn't it? Don't we need someone who has a perspective above all perspectives? You see, Paul has been laboring to convince us that God's gospel is good and just the all-encompassing perspective that we need. He shows us, and he's been laboring to show us, how the fulfillment of, this is how God is fulfilling that great reclamation project that we talked about all through Genesis, of reclaiming a people to himself. And in order to convince us of our need, he's shown us how sinful and depraved our hearts are and how hopeless we are apart from the only the hope that God can give. And that hope comes from this gospel that is a righteousness from God apart from works of the law. Because there's no way we can do them in a way that's pleasing to God. And he's laboring now to convince us that this was God's plan right from the beginning. The main idea of this passage is that God's covenant blessing has been around since near the beginning of time. And I would argue, although it's another sermon, from before the beginning of time. So what kind of gospel is the gospel? Well, since the beginning, it's been at the heart of the history of redemption, the sign of redemption, and the promise of redemption. The gospel has been at the heart of the history of redemption, verses 1 through 8. And the takeaway here is that God's never given up on his promise, so rest assured, he won't. Ever. So, It seems like at the beginning of our chapter here that Abraham had some status, right? He's our forefather according to the flesh. And he asked the question, what did he gain from being that forefather? And in verse two, he says, well, his uh, special status did not give him anything because if it was by works or anything apart from grace, we would have something to boast about. But he says, if he had anything to boast about, if he was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, this comes from the work of another. And Abraham was told that. In verse three, for what does the scripture say? This is the perspective we need. God's authority his eternal, all-encompassing, all-knowing authority. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Now, what was his situation here? Well, Abraham had some concerns. God, you promised me some children. We read about his body being as good as dead and his wife's womb being barren. So he is trusting God, but something hadn't happened here. And so in Genesis 15:3, we see the situation. And Abraham said, meaning to God, He said, behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. So he knows that a blessing is supposed to come through his line. Out of his line, he was told when God first called him that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Look at Genesis 12, 3. God says to Abraham when he called him for the first time, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed as it was in the beginning. You see, this isn't anything new. This even goes back to that verse that by now you might say, Andy, we got it, okay? I'm going to say it again, Genesis 3.15. It's your interpretive key to all of Scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Talking to the serpent. That, that there would be a line of people, all of us, save for one, were born seed or offspring of the serpent, of the devil. But there's going to come one who's going to crush the head of the devil, even though, while at the same time, nipping at his heel. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a heel wound than a head wound. And that's the victory of Jesus that he won for us on the cross. That's the first prophecy of it right there. So what was it that counted to Abraham? Well, we know uh, this, this verse that Paul is quoting here is from Genesis 15, 6. Well, let's look at that context. Uh, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Abraham's worried about children. In Genesis 15, 5 says that God brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed who? He believed the Lord. The Lord. There's something in, in other words, he didn't just believe what the Lord said. He believed the Lord that if the Lord said something, there's something about the Lord in his goodness, in his righteousness, in his holiness, that if the Lord said it, it is as good as done. And so that faith counted to him as righteousness. Now, this was all in the context of what was the later come, right? We've talked about this too. At Genesis 15, the division of the animals that God called him to bring all these animals, cut them in half. You know, it's a pretty gory sight, lots of blood. And this is how people made covenants back in those ancient times where they would walk through together hand in hand. And what they would be saying there is what happened to these animals happened to me if I don't keep my side of the covenant. And you know what happened with Abraham? Abraham did not walk through those animals. Only God did in the symbols of uh, a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Only God walked through the animals. And what God was saying is, yes, Abraham, if I fail to keep my side of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. God was not going to fail. But you know what else God was saying? God was saying, if you, Abraham, fail to keep this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to you, Abraham? No, he's saying, if you fail, Abraham, may what happened to these animals happen to me. There was going to be bloodshed. There had to be. Why? Genesis two seventeen. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what happens to covenant breakers. They must Pay the cost. And so we see that faith is counted, it's imputed, it's credited. Abraham did nothing. And he needed that because otherwise he would have to die for his sins. And they wouldn't atone for him. He would just be doing justice. 
So let's explain Abraham like Paul does in verses four through eight. Paul starts talking about wages. We know what wages are, right? If I do some work for you and you give me money for it, that's not a gift. You exchange, you exchange my work for that money that I can then use on whatever I please, right? But what happened in verse five? And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Abraham trusted It was not a work. It's a condition, but it's not a work. You see, there are two characters you have to be convinced of, like Abraham, God's good and holy character and your bad and ungodly character before God. I'm not saying you have bad character in general in front of people, but God sees into all motives. And so before God, we have, like he says, nothing to boast about at all. Okay, even the best of our people here. Um, so you have to remember that it's, if you have this before God, you can't work for your salvation, your redemption. There is no way. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't put it back in. So you gotta remember what Paul said in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we all are. So the only thing we can do is if God's got this offer for us, we just got to trust. Trust that God is so good that he would justify you knowing that you are ungodly. That you're the opposite of what he made you to be, to reflect his honor and his glory. And so he brings in another witness from the history of redemption. And we see progress of redemption here um, in King David. Right? David comes from Abraham's line. And David speaks here as a covenant head. He has authority. Because Paul says, just as David speaks, it's God's authority when David speaks. But neither David nor Abraham can affect what David speaks of. Verse 6, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. You got to understand, this goes all the way, Paul is saying, this goes all the way back there to David. It goes all the way back there to Abraham. It goes all the way back there to Adam and Eve. That the God of the Old Testament is not the just the wrathful, vengeful God. And the God of the New Testament is the meek and mild Jesus. It's the same God. It's the same exact story. In essence, it's the same. Yes, there are different historical unveilings of it, but they all knew someone had to die in my place and that I can't have a righteousness of my own. I need a righteousness apart from the works of the law. They all believe this. So these Jews of the Old Testament are not the same as the Jews of today because the Jews of the day still believe in salvation by works. They don't believe the same thing as these Jews. They're not the same people. We are the same people with them. They are the same people with us. We are the people of God, one people of God, one God overall. 
So all these generations knew that there was a righteousness apart from the law, and that is what the blessing of the covenant is. This special kind of blessing, a special word for it in the Old Testament, hesed. It means this, that you get a gift that your sin cannot tarnish. You get righteousness that you in all your ungodliness, past, present, and future, cannot tarnish. And it's all the righteousness you need to stand before God. It's covenant love. It's not just any old kind of love. It's a love that's saying, I will go to the death to make this happen. As it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be. We see it in verses seven and eight, of course, in quoting Psalm uh, 31, verses one and two. So you see, through all of this redemptive history, God's never given up on his promise. So rest assured, he won't ever. So the main idea, God's covenant blessing has been around since the beginning of time. What kind of gospel is the gospel? Since the beginning of time, it's been the heart of the history of redemption, but it's also been the heart of the sign of redemption in verses nine through 12. And the takeaway from here is God's always meant what he's promised and he always will. You can trust his word. And what we see in verses nine and 10 is that the sign signifies The sign has meaning. Faith counted as righteousness. There's nine. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Circumcision being that sign. What did circumcision distinguish back in that that, uh, administration of the covenant? It distinguished God's people from the rest of the world. So he's saying, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So this blessing is counted as righteousness. In other words, not done by him. Faith is not a work, but a condition, as we have said. But Paul is raising this issue. Is it for the Jews only? Right? Is it for the circumcision only? Well, remember what Paul said in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, and no circumcision is outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. For his praise is not from man, but from God. What marks you out as a true Jew is whether God's done this work in your heart. Well, that means you, if you truly have rested in Jesus as your Savior, you're really what a Jew should be. You are a Jew. But also we see in verse 10, the timing of what counted with Abraham. Verse 10, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, which is setting up the answer to the question of verse nine. Is the blessing for the circumcised or the uncircumcised? Was it just for the Jew? It would make sense. It should naturally flow from that. They have, uh, as we see later, you can look now even, uh, Romans 3, 1 through 2, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what value is circumcision? Much in every way, Paul says. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They had the word of God. And so it should follow that they get this blessing, but they somehow something went off and they didn't, they didn't get it in mass. I mean, some of them got it when Jesus showed up. 
Abraham got this sign before, I mean, he, he, he got the righteousness before he was circumcised. Why? Because what the sign signifies is more important than the sign. That is not to say the sign is not important. Think of my wedding band. My wedding band is not the same thing as the history and the love and the devotion and, and all the acceptance and joys and ups and downs that have happened between Kelly and me. But this sign signifies to me and to the world around me that I am a one-woman man and I belong to only her, right? So the sign is important, but what's more important? The wedding band or the relationship? It's the relationship that gives power to the sign. Abraham had that gift of righteousness before he was circumcised. God gave righteousness through faith regardless of the sign is what this is saying. Verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had while he was still circumcised. This is a seal of my relationship with Kelly, exactly what that relationship is for everybody and myself to know, right? It's a seal. It's not the same thing, but there is a closeness between the sign and what is signified by it. The seal was circumcision. God was telling Abraham, look, I know my word is as good as gold, but I know you're weak and you need something to see. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the sign. You're not gonna make up the sign. I'm gonna give you the sign. And that sign is circumcision. The second half of verse 11 tells us why. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Because we come along now, you know, circumcision is not a religious rite anymore. It can be a medical procedure. But Gentiles were basically known by them as uncircumcised, people that were non-Israelites, non-Jewish people. And what this is showing is that what matters is not the sign per se, but, uh, but the relationship that the sign signifies, the good relationship that you are justified, that you are righteous before God. All right, so it's signifying that faith as is real apart from the sign though the sign should be included. I would never say, don't get baptized, right? Or don't baptize your babies. No, the sign is important. It's a means of grace. But what it signifies is the most important thing. We don't get this automatically. Like Abraham's the father of the Jews, right? But they rejected Jesus. It doesn't come just because you have a bloodline. And even though there may be a great spiritual lineage, do you in your family of faith passed on from generation to generation, is it really true faith for you? You see, what the common ground is between the circumcised and the uncircumcised is what? Faith. In whom? God, who's always meant what he's promised and he always will. 
Abraham was to have many offspring. As we saw in Genesis 12, 3 is a fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15, but a partial fulfillment because that wouldn't come fully until Christ came and brought all the offspring in, fully. And he shows it by the sign and what the sign signifies, that through Jesus, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, we receive the covenant blessing instead of the covenant curse. God's covenant blessing has been around since the beginning of time. What kind of gospel then is the gospel? Since the beginning, it's been the heart of the history of redemption, all of the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi. It's been the heart of the sign of redemption, circumcision. It's also the heart of the promise of redemption, verses 13 through 25. And the takeaway from here is God is worthy of all your trust and he always will be. What did Abraham get as a result of his faith? That he would be, according to verse 13, he and his offspring would be heir of the world. Now the Greek word for world there is cosmos. God's gonna give us everything, along with our father Abraham. And you know why Abraham's our father? Because we're the true Jews. We follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. And what marks out this promise? Look at the second half of verse 13. It did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Righteousness of faith. That means a righteousness that is merely received passively. Put it in my hands, God. Give me the righteous record of Jesus because I have no righteousness of my own on which to stand. If I'm going to have any, any chance with you at all, I need the righteousness of Jesus. And guess what? When you get it, you have more than a chance. You are in. You are in forever. Look at this, the heart of the heart of the gospel, Romans 3, 21 through 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the written, the writings of the law, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, even though the law was given, it was all pointing to this. The righteousness, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. It's simple. Do you want it? Do you really want Jesus and his righteousness given to you as a gift? It's just that simple. The law is works. It's not promise. Promise is based on covenant love, which means you will see the blood. Verse 14, for it is not the adherents of the law who are to be heirs. In other words, they earned that status based on their law keeping. Because if it was, faith is null and the promise is void. There's no need. You have the righteousness if you could work it out yourself. You don't even need a promise. The promise is based on God, not man. Well, on one man, the God man, Jesus Christ. It's based on him and his work on your behalf, not his perfect record of righteousness is given to you. See, God is as good as is his word because we see it 
in the blood that he spilt of his son. You know that he will keep his word. And so what's the function of the law? Verse 15, for the law brings wrath. In a judgment sense, that's all the law can do for you. You can't be good enough for God, no matter how good you think you are. And you might think you're pretty good. You might think you're better than somebody else, better than those people over there. And maybe on a human level, you might be. And you might have something to boast about, but as Paul says, not before God. Not when it all comes down. You will face the same judgment as that person that you think you're better than. And guess what? You thinking you're better than them and thinking you're so much better and, oh, God ought to pick me because I'm so good. Guess what? That's gonna actually make you worse than him, that person you think you're better than. And you might incur a greater judgment as a result. All the law can bring is God's wrath. It awakens the sense of you deserve hell for your law breaking. You're an image bearer of God and you have not kept his law, which is a reflection of his image. You have fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, you deserve eternity in hell. But God is being fair. That's what Paul means when he says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's saying, but there is a law. God is not hiding it from you. He's giving you the requirements, right? Look at Romans uh, 2, 13 through 15. We've already looked at it. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, you may do the law somewhat, right? How many of y'all think you did it well enough to be justified before God? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. But here's what happens. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. We know that the law is right and good and that we should live by it, but we fall short of it. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we go from Abraham being the heir of the world to showing what it, where it, how the heir of the world happens. It's through the resurrected world. We have a transcendent guarantor. Verses 16 through 22. First of all, the promise rests on God's favor. Verse 16. It's faith in whom? It's faith in God. Verse 16. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace, undeserved favor from God, in other words, and may be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Abraham, our father, Proves God is true to his word. Here's God's proof. Abraham is our father in the faith. In the faith. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you father of many nations. How could he be father of many nations? I thought he was the father of the Jews. It's because faith is more important than blood. It's also Abraham's proof that God is true to his word at the almost death of Isaac. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life from the dead, right? Calls into existence the things that do not exist. Genesis 22, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, uh, both of them uh, together. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. He knew 
that that ram took the son's place. And in a sense, he got Isaac back from the dead. He understood death and resurrection is where I get my redemption. Okay? And setting up the idea of Sarah's barrenness and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's what God does. By the word of his power, by his creative word, let there be light and there was light. Let there be life in this barren womb and there was life. So he became, what does it say? Fully convinced that God, fully convinced that God You see, everything was pointing away from trusting God's promise to him. Let's get practical, Abraham. Look at what it says, verse 19. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. God made his promise of children and everything in his sight around him said, nope, ain't gonna happen, right? But yet he had no weakening, no wavering, no distrust. Fully convinced that God was able to do and that he had done already what he had promised, verse 21. Why then was it counted to him as righteousness? He was convinced that God was good enough for his word. That both God, the good God who spoke the word and the promise would fulfill it. And he had faith in that God. It's not just faith. It's not just, okay, I walked the aisle and trusted Jesus as my savior And then I go out and forget about all that, but I'm still going to heaven. No, it's faith in Jesus. Jesus. That's what Abraham is showing, that righteousness is a gift from God, the righteous God. Why would you want to walk away from that kind of gift giver? And so we get taken up as Abraham's heirs. That's how Paul closes this out. You see, God has been at it since the beginning with us in mind. It's always been by faith because we could never keep the law the way we should. Look at verse 23. But the words it was counted to him, counted to him, were not written for his sake alone. The righteousness that Jesus earned was what was counted. Who else was it written for? Ours also, verse 24. It was written for our sake. And what was it? Jesus, our Lord, raised from the dead. Counted to whom? Verse 24, the next part. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. Because that's the whole kit and caboodle of the promise from the beginning to the end. Because the resurrected world is coming and Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection and we are with him. So all the gift of salvation Everything, heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, everything thrown in. That's what we're trusting God for in Christ. And what will be the result? Verse 25, Jesus, who was delivered up by God for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Normally, we think of justification coming through his life and his death, but his resurrection Why? Because that's the end game of it all. It tells us everything. All that happened all back there is for this, for you. God's worthy of all your trust and he always will be. So in conclusion, Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, 
Your faith is futile, meaning useless. You're playing games and you are still in your sins. But raised for our justification means the resurrected world, the world that we were meant for, the permanence. Faith is as useful as the God who raised Jesus from the dead. His perspective is full reality, so it is all guaranteed. As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you made us Abraham's children, children who follow in his footsteps of the faith. And you did this by the work of Jesus on the cross and in his resurrection. For it is you who granted us the faith to turn from our sins and to trust only in Christ as we trusted in your kindness and goodness in giving him to us. May we live in confidence and follow after your word without fear and in the power of your spirit. For it is in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen.